Obadiah, one of those little short books in the back of the Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, all of those guys at the back. Obadiah. We're also going to uh, turn uh, to Psalm 137 and read a verse in Psalm 137. And we're also going to read a few verses in uh, Ezekiel 35. And so if you want to stick something in your Bible at Ezekiel 35, Psalm 137, we will uh, read a couple of verses in those locations here in just a few moments. Do you like poetry? I uh, was never a fan of poetry. I remember, um, I guess the first books of poetry I ever wrote was written by, uh, were written by a preacher. He wrote three books of poems, and uh, some of those really caught my heart and mind. Uh, poetry, where you have uh, one line of poetry answering to another line of poetry. I want you to notice in uh, Obadiah that there is a verse of poetry in this little short letter that has identified its theme. Look at verse number 15. Obadiah verse 15, the Bible says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. This has been called the message of poetic justice. What is going to happen is because of what you did. It is the Old Testament uh, correspondence to the New Testament teaching that you reap what you sow. What you do puts seeds in the ground that will grow and what happens will be in relationship to what you have done. And that's what Obadiah is really all about, that, that what had been done locked in what was going to happen to a group of people. As I said a moment ago, these are minor prophets only because of their length. This is the shortest of the minor prophets. The messages are major, though, and I want you to understand why the messages are major. These are, these are Bible preachers. These are preachers who delivered messages from God to a time in history to God's people. And they, they are provided in the Bible and become to us amazing examples of Bible preaching by preachers who had the message of God for their generation. And so the prophets and uh, the minor prophets that we're looking at uh, need to be studied, I believe, by, by preachers today to understand God's messaging to His creation. What was important to God? What did God send His preachers to preach in the historic context that they were in? And when preachers study, as they do in Bible college, when they study the the prophets, the Bible preachers, they often study them from the perspective of these are, uh, these are uh, examples of the preachers of a bygone age that God made a part of the Word of God that instruct us 
on the mind of God in messaging to his creation. And so these are great resources for preachers to know how to preach, to know what to preach, to understand the messaging mind of God to his creation. They're also very valuable for church members. Church members who want to know how biblical is my church? Does the messaging that comes from the messaging of the church that I'm a member of, does it reflect the messaging mind of God that He inspired in His written record of the messages to His created world? The messaging mind of God. And so they're valuable for preachers to know how to preach and what to preach. They're valuable for church members to evaluate their own church. Whether or not the messaging mind of God comes through the, the life of the church that they are a part of. Well, the bottom line up front, the bluff of the, the evening message is understand and believe God. This is a great short little letter that tells us God does what he says he's going to do. You can trust him to do what he said he was going to do. Do you understand the importance of that? Do you believe that it's important for you to have confidence in God? I was talking to one of our children in our ministry this morning after church. This particular child asked me a question out on the patio, and we were talking about the subject of, uh, that the, the child asked me about. And this particular child, I don't know, uh, elementary age, not, a, not from a church member family, a family that attends every once in a while, and the, the little girl asked me a question about, you know, where God started and, uh, uh, and some things about God. And, 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 and how, can, you know, how can you believe that, that there is something that never had a starting point? And so we were talking about that. And, and I talked to this, uh, this child about, how, and her dad was standing right there. And I said, you know, your dad, and I knew a little bit about her, her dad's proficiencies. I said, if I ask your dad how a computer works... He could probably tell me how a computer works. If I asked you how a computer works, you wouldn't have the foggiest idea. I said there's a difference in the mind of your dad's understanding and your mind of understanding. And so what your dad can understand, you can say, I don't see how that could even be possible. And you don't understand. I said that's the way it is with a human being and God. God understands things that you can't even begin to figure out. But you know, when your dad tries to explain to you how computer works and you can't figure it out and you have the foggiest idea how that computer works, you still push the on button and play a game. And I said, that's the way it is with God. You may not understand everything about God, but you can trust what he says because he's God and he understands everything. And what he's told you is true. And so even though you can't understand how it could be true, you can trust him and believe that it's true. And, li- and, and push the button and play the game and live according to his intelligence and understanding. It's important for us to trust God, to believe that God is going to do what he said he was going to do. And in the history of humanity, he has given us example after example after example how he does do what he says he's going to do. And Obadiah is one of those places. The storyline of Obadiah goes well before, starts well before his lifetime. Obadiah is considered to probably be the first of the 
written prophets, the prophets who wrote down their messages and their stories and became a part of Scripture. He's generally believed the first. If you look on the back of your little worksheet there, you see a little chart I've given to you over and over again throughout the um, history of the church in teaching. It illustrates, it kind of puts on a piece of paper the kingdom of Israel under Saul, David, and Solomon, then how the kingdom split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, how the northern kingdom eventually went into Assyrian captivity, how the southern kingdom eventually went into Babylonian captivity, then how the southern kingdom came back to the land of Israel and rebuilt their city of Jerusalem. And then in red, you see the prophets, the written prophets. You'll see that Obadiah is the first one listed. Obadiah and Joel, contemporaries... And they wrote and ministered in the southern kingdom long before the Babylonian captivity. So that gives you a little time reference point there. The story of what Obadiah preached about goes well before his lifetime. It goes all the way back to Genesis 25. It goes back to a story of the birth of twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And we remember that Esau was a rugged man. He was a daddy's boy. He loved to hunt and his dad loved to eat the game that he would kill and bring to the dinner table. We also know that Esau was not, seemed to not be given to spiritual things. He didn't regard the birthright, which was his connection to being a progenitor of the plan of God for the Abrahamic family that would eventually give us Jesus Christ and our Bible. He didn't seem to have a a real affinity to that birthright. And he was willing to sell it for a mess of pottage. And so the pottage was red in color. And so he was nicknamed or named, renamed Edom. Because Edom means red. And Esau, who, who gave away his birthright because he was hungry for a little bit of pot of red pottage, he became Edom in the Bible. And his descendants became the Edomites. And so throughout the Old Testament, there's the storyline of the descendants of Esau. And they were known as the Edomites. And they hated the descendants of their dad's twin brother. It was a family feud that existed throughout the Old Testament. A feud between the descendants of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the, the, the dads of 12 families. Those 12 families became the 12 families of Jacob. Jacob was renamed Israel. So they became the 12 families of Israel. They went to Egypt. They grew. They multiplied hundreds of years later. They're a mighty nation of over 2 million people. They come back to the land as the nation of Jacob or the nation of Israel, as Jacob was renamed. The Edomites hated the Israelites. And we can trace through the Old Testament the, the animosity between these families of descendants, uh, the, the, um, the feud that existed. We see... Their animosity when Moses led the children of Israel back to the promised land. The Edomites wouldn't let them go through their territory. and It became a big problem. We can see them in the times of the kings with, uh, with uh, uh, Saul and David fighting and battling with the Edomites. We see them 
When, the, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Jerusalem, we see the Edomites there cheering them on, uh, cheering on uh, Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers to destroy the descendants of their dad's twin brother. We see them even, history tells us, in 70 A.D. when Titus and the Roman armies destroyed the city of Jerusalem and scattered the Israelite people to the four winds of the earth. We see them uh, there at that time as well. The Edomites, we read statements of this feud scattered throughout the Old Testament. You need to know and understand the hatred of these Edomites for their kin as a significant part of the story of the Old Testament in order to be able to appreciate and understand this short little book of Obadiah. You see, Esau and Edom and Mount Seir all refer to the same group of people and the place where they lived. And their capital city was none other than the city of Petra. We had the opportunity to go to Petra, the group that went to Israel, and we walked down to Petra. Most walked, uh, some I think rode, but uh, most walked down to Petra, and it was an amazing experience. Let me show you where all of this is. By the way, we are getting close. Rumor has it that our projector is inside the United States borders. And, uh, and rumor has it that it's supposed to be shipped from wherever it is inside the U.S., to us this Friday. And so if it takes a week to get here, and then however long it takes for our tech guys to get it operational, we are down to just a very uh, few weeks, couple of weeks maybe, or a few weeks before this won't be a problem. So let's cut some lights and let's uh, help me out as best you can here for a few months. We're going to look at slides two through nine. Slides two through nine. And understand where this is taking place. Um, this, of course, is a map of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, Africa. This is, um, of course, Egypt and uh, the, uh, uh, down to the, uh, red, the, the, the branches of the Red Sea, uh, of course, the Dead Sea, and, and Israel, if you can see it in red, the outline of present modern-day Israel. That right there is the city of Petra that we visit. This was the capital city of the Edomite people in Bible times. Next slide, we'll zoom in just a little bit. We can see the end of the Dead Sea, and so we're due south of the southernmost tip of the Dead Sea, and we're just to the east of the border of Israel inside the country of Jordan. This is the home of the Edomites that Obadiah is writing about. Next slide, uh, this is Petra and you can just kind of get the idea, this is a rugged, rugged land. A very mountainous, rocky land. Next slide. When you go to Petra, you walk through these, uh, it's almost like walking through a cavern with these two. Uh, you're walking in a narrow gorge between uh, 200 to 300 foot tall red uh, rocks that you're walking between. And after walking for a few miles, you eventually catch a glimpse that up ahead there's something. And what? And then you get closer and you see there's something up there. And then if you look a little bit further, you find out it's Suresh. <laughs> yeah. 
Suresh, he wrote, this is a, this is Seek Suresh. He wrote his camels in because this is the treasury of Petra. And he was there uh, to, to uh, make a deposit of a million uh, pesos or shekels or something in the treasury uh, for the, uh, paying for the trip. So anyway, this, and then this is the first glimpse as you walk through this gorge and it opens up into the city of Petra. And all of a sudden you realize this is an amazingly massive fortified. I mean, I mean, the, the, the these people lived uh, in this um, well defensible place that was just very impressive. Next slide. Uh, you, if you look really close, you'll find Messaker and her mom. And you can even find James and John. And all of them were there depositing their money in the treasury. Um, next slide. And this, this kind of gives um, the, some of the ruins, the massive. You can, if, you look, if, you can, if you can pick them out, you'll see little, little people, little tiny people. It gives kind of an idea of the massive size of this. This was a massive culture, a massive people group, a people that had dug themselves into the rocks Nobody could, could, uh, could destroy them. Nobody could uh, take away their country. They were dug into the rocks, and it was a massive group of people. Now, this group of people were the enemies of Israel. Now, I, I mentioned to you, to, you stuck something there in Psalm 137. Psalm 137 records for us a, a psalm of when Israel had been taken into captivity by the Nebuchadnezzar. Psalm 137 starts out by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down. If you come down to verse number 7. So here's Israel, the captives in Babylon as slaves. And they say in verse 7, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem. They're, they're talking about the day that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed their city. And the Edomites, they said, they were there, and they were crying out, raise it, R-A-S-E. In other words, tear it down, tear it down, even to the foundation thereof. These were the Edomites cheering on the Babylonian soldiers to destroy the city, the capital city of their father's twin brother's people. And then if you go to the book of Ezekiel chapter 35. Here's what another prophet had to say about God's dealing with the Edomites. Ezekiel 35. Reading just a, a couple of verses at the beginning, a few of the verses at the beginning of the chapter. Another preacher preaching about the same group of people, the Edomites. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Mount Seir. This was where the Edomites lived. This is Petra. Set thy face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say unto it, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against thee, and I will stretch out mine hand against thee, and I will make thee most desolate. I will lay thy cities waste. This is Petra. God says, I'm going to lay Petra waste, and thou shalt be desolate, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Why? Because thou hast had a perpetual hatred and hast shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword 
in the time of their calamity, in the time that their iniquity had an end. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, I will prepare thee unto blood, and blood shall pursue thee. Sith, and the word Sith, S-I-T-H, Old English word for seeing that, or since, or for this reason, since, or for this reason, thou hast not hated blood, even blood shall pursue thee. And blood shall pursue thee, since thou hast not hated blood. You didn't hate it when Nebuchadnezzar poured out the blood of your relatives. You didn't hate it when Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers came in and what they did to your kinfolk. And because you didn't hate the pouring out of their blood, I am preparing you for the pouring out of your blood. And so this is the people group that Obadiah is writing about. Now, the the message of Obadiah is short. The message of Obadiah has two parts. The first part of the message of Obadiah is the destruction of Edom. And it goes from verse 1 to 16. We won't read it all, but we'll read a couple of parts of it. This is the vision of Obadiah. This is the word of God. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord. And so Obadiah is delivering a message. Now, what can you learn about this message? You have four points to the message of the destruction of Edom. First of all is its author, and its author is God himself. We have heard a rumor from the Lord. Jehovah God has given me this message. I'm telling you what God told me to tell you. And the rumor is from God, an ambassador is sent among the heathen, saying, Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Thou dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as an eagle, and though thou settest thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. So the author of this message is none other than God himself. Now, the extent of this message is given in verses 5 to verse number 9. And verse 5 says, If thieves come to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If, if, if robbers came in and broke in, they're only going to steal what they want. And they're going to leave everything else behind. If grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? They're not going to take every single grape. They're going to grab what they can grab and leave. They're going to leave some. But I'm going to totally take everything. There will be nothing left. The extent of what God's going to do to the Edomite people is nothing short than total destruction. And he talks about that down through verse number 9. Now something that's really, uh, I think, interesting is that in Ezekiel's prophecy, in Ezekiel 25, 13, God said that his judgment of the Edomite people would extend to Teman, T-E-M-A-N, which is called today, on maps today, Mayan, M-A-apostrophe-A-N. In other words, God established the limit 
of the destruction of the Edomites. And the destruction is going to be total regarding the Edomites. Every village, every one of those, those uh, homes and those buildings that were carved into the rock, all of that is going to be totally destroyed. The people, the possessions, the Edomites as a civilization will be totally destroyed up to Teman. Let me show you what, what this means on a map. Here's Petra. This is Jordan, Dead Sea, Red Sea, Petra. This is Teman, or Mahan. God says, I'm going to destroy the Edomites to Teman. How accurate is God? Can you believe God? Look at this slide. You can go to Mayan today. You can go to Teman today and find it a prosperous city. God totally destroyed the Edomites up to the extent of Teman, and Teman still exists to this very day as a thriving place. But nothing else exists. Why? Because you can believe God. You can count on God to do what He said He was going to do. The extent of it. Now why? Why is God going to do this? Well, verse number 10 to verse number 14 tells us the reason. He says, For this reason, for thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. And then I want you to notice the description. This is what the Edomites did to their kinfolk. Verse number 11, In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. You stood by and watched it. You didn't lift a hand to help your kinfolk. You watched Israel be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's army. And you just stood there and became as one of Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers. Verse number 12. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress, thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of thy people in the day of their calamity. Thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor should, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of his calamity. Oh, the Edomites, their hatred for Israel, anti-Semitism to the max, the hatred of the people of Jacob, the descendants of Israel, Jacob renamed Israel. They not only watched Nebuchadnezzar destroy Jerusalem, but they encouraged it. They rejoiced. They were proud to see what was happening to the nation of Israel. They even went in and helped plunder the stuff that was left over. They even was, were outside the city of Jerusalem and when Israelites were escaping and running down the road, they would block them so that they would be captured by the Nebuchadnezzar soldiers. 
They would even take them back to the soldiers and turn them back over to them. The Edomites and their hatred for Israel as a people, for their own kin. And it went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Oh, the reason one author called this description in verses 10 to 14, Edom's three unpardonable sins. Edom encouraged Judah's foes. Edom enjoyed Judah's fall. And Edom enslaved Judah's fugitives. They hated the Jews. Anti-Semitism to its max. Why is God going to do what He's going to do to Edom? That's why. Because they hate the Jews. Because of anti-Semitism. Now look at the message that, that Obadiah is delivering in verse number 15. As thou hast done, it shall be done to thee. Poetic justice. You're going to reap what you sowed. What you've done to the Jewish people, you are going to experience in your own lives. Jason Low Baxter listed five specific parallels between Edom's iniquity and God's judgment here in the short book of Obadiah. Comparing verses back and forth in Obadiah, they got treachery for treachery. They got robbery for robbery. They got violence for violence. They got destruction for destruction. And handing over the remnant balanced with the remnant possessing their land. You helped anti-Semites take the land of Israel. You will lose your own land. To the extent, to the boundary of Teman, you will lose your possessions. Jason Lobaxter said, and I quote, Yes, poetic justice, the penalty corresponding to the iniquity as one line of poetry corresponds to another. So the message of Obadiah is a message of judgment. Now, mind you, this was not written, this sermon was not preached to the Edomites. Obadiah didn't go down to Petra and preach this sermon in front of the treasury building. This was preached to Judah. He was a preacher to the southern kingdom. Why did he preach this sermon to God's people? Because God's people needed to have confidence that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And anti-Semitism will not win. And anti-Semites will be punished to the extent of what they did to Israel. And God's people needs to know that God is committed to the future covenants and promises that He made. And so this sermon was preached to God's people to build up their confidence, to build up their faith, to build up their trust in God. And that's why the last few verses of this book, the second part of this sermon, is the salvation of Israel. This sermon was on the destruction of Edom and the salvation of Israel. The destruction of the anti-Semites and the salvation of Israel as a people group. And so, verses 17 to 21 is God's answer to anti-Semitism. 
And it has two parts. You see them in your notes. It's promise and it's extent. It's promise in verse number 17. Notice verse 17. God said, but I'm going to, I'm going to punish, I'm going to totally destroy Edom. I'm going to wipe out Edomites as a people group. There will be no Edomites when I finish. And, and historically, from my understanding and from my reading, that all ended in 70 AD when Titus' army came in and the Edomites finally met the full extent of God's judgment and they were totally wiped out. And uh, Rome couldn't have that massive fortress along the trade route between Egypt and, and, the, and, the, West, and the East. And so um, Edom totally destroyed totally annihilated. And God's promise, but upon Mount Zion, he talked about Mount Seir, that's Petra, that's where Petra is located. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance and holiness and possessing your possessions. Wow. What a promise. A promise that Mount Seir's not going to last. Petra's not going to last. The Edomites are not going to last. But my people, Israel, my city, Jerusalem, my mountain, Mount Zion, you will possess all of your possessions. You know, you can, this is talking about God's title deed, Israel's title deed to their land. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, where God marked out and said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this over to that place, over to this place, up to that place, down to that place. I'm going to give you a title deed to this piece of real estate. Israel is not occupied territory. Israel does not exist on occupied territory. Israel exists on the land that God promised to them in Genesis chapter number 35, chapter number 15. And they hold the title deed to that real estate. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns the entire globe and everything that's in the entire globe. And God gave the title deed to a piece of real estate to the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, through, jo- through Jacob's 12 sons. That people group have a title deed from God for that land. You say, what land do they have a title deed for? Well, let me show it to you. Here's the title deed. Israel right now occupies a little sliver of land here that kind of comes down to the tip there and comes back up and they own a little bit. And, and uh, people talk about, well, they're, they're, they're encroaching on the Palestinians' land. They're, they're, on, they're on occupied territory. They're, they have moved on to occupied. No. God gave them this body of land. Study your Bible. God gave them that is Israel's land. They have the title deed from Babylon to the Mediterranean Sea, from, from uh, Lebanon, to, from the Golan, above the Golan Heights, all the way down to the top of the Red Sea to Saudi Arabia. This is Israel. They have a title deed from God to that land. And they've been hated throughout their entire existence. And anti-Semites throughout their entire existence has attacked them and warred against them. And the Edomites were as vicious and as bad as any of them in trying to 
destroy Israel and root for the enemies of Israel. The promise of God is that Israel will last. Israel will last. And they will possess their possessions. Wow! They will possess their possessions. One day. And you know, they have never possessed all of that land at any time in their history. Never in their history have they ever taken possession of what God gave them. They've only taken possession of a small part of it. But God said the day is going to come when you're going to possess your possessions. They will have all of that real estate under their domain at some point in the future. It is the promise of God to His people. Then I want you to notice the extent of God's salvation to the people of Israel. Verse number 19 says, they, and it begins to go through the, the uh, places and, and, and the possessions. This is all going to happen, by the way. This will be, all be at the culmination of the tribulation period. This will be as the Antichrist tries to uh, destroy Israel once again, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. There will likely be concentration camps again. Think of Hitler. There will likely be different places where Jews will be enslaved and, and put in holding places when Jesus Christ arrives, destroys the Antichrist and all of his armies and gathers all. The Bible talks about the, the elect being drawn back uh, to, to Israel. Jesus will be there in Jerusalem. They will come back. Jesus Christ will establish his kingdom. He will fulfill every covenant promise he ever made to Israel. He has never revoked any of his covenants. All of his covenants were unconditional, not conditional Israel's obedience. And he will fulfill every one of those covenants at some point in the future. And verse number 21 ends by saying that saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Those saviors are going to be Twelve apostles, we saw this morning that they're one day going to be judges, judging the house of Israel. Uh, those judges are going to be, those saviors are going to be, uh, according to Revelation, the redeemed of the church age that will be entrusted with political responsibility of government in various parts of God's kingdom all over this world. God's going to set up saviors or judges or rulers and operate a government and an agriculture and a, and a society in this entire world for a thousand years. And during that time, Israel themselves will possess their entire title deed possessions that God promised Abraham. And the twelve apostles will be saviors and rule there in that place, in that people. You see, let me, let me end by drawing a couple of, a couple of uh, takeaways a couple of things that we learn from this, from the book of Obadiah. Why is it in our Bible? Why should we understand the book of Obadiah? Why should we know what it teaches? The preacher looked beyond the present into the future. That's important. We saw that this morning. Jesus Christ at a crisis moment in the upper room where the disciples, the apostles, had just really blown it big time. Jesus Christ did not express or react with 
with, with uh, rage at, at their failures, but rather he, he talked about good things they'd done in the past, his trust in the, the present, and, and he painted the picture of a glorious future for them. You see, Obadiah focused on the future. He ended his focus on the future. A glorious future for a covenanted people. Do you understand? It's been 4,000 years since God made that covenant to Abraham. It was made 2,150 years before Christ. It has been over over 4,000 years since, since God made that promise. And Obadiah in his time was looking forward to the fulfillment of those covenant promises. I learned something from that as a preacher. Preach about the future. Let people know the victory of the future. Let people know we're on the winning side. Let people know that the future is glorious. And as bad as it may get in the time frame in which we live. I mean, it was a hard time when the Edomites were having the upper hand over Israel. But Obadiah, as a preacher, pointed the Israelite people, think of the future. Think of the end result. Think of the day when saviors, judges, political rulers will be in charge and and the kingdom is the Lord's. God wins. And the preacher pointed the people toward that during difficult days. Don't focus on the negative. Focus on the positive. Don't focus on the present. Focus on the future. The preacher looked ahead and counted God's covenant promises to be secure in spite of what he sees. I wrote down five, um, four, four takeaways at the bottom of your little worksheet there. When I, when I read and study Obadiah, I walk away with four takeaways. Number one, sin always leads to judgment. Obadiah was very clear that what was going to happen to Edom was because of what they had done. Reaping and sowing. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto you. Sin always leads to judgment. And that's an important message for people to get a hold of in our world today. It's about, as a matter of fact, it's, it's the beginning of preparing someone for the gospel when they understand that sin leads to judgment. It's the work of the law that makes a person guilty before God, Romans 3 tells us, so that they're ready to hear the gospel. Takeaway number two, if you mess with Israel, you mess with God. You mess with Israel, you mess with God. That doesn't mean Israel's always right. Doesn't mean Israel always does the right thing. Doesn't mean that Israel is a godly people. It does mean that if you mess with Israel, you mess with God. And at the end of it all, anti-Semites, all the heathen, um, the the emphasis here that uh, that Obadiah brought was not just the Edomites, but all the heathen. All anti-Semites will be judged by God. Don't mess with Israel. Takeaway number three is God is faithful to His promises. I think that's the big one. God is faithful to His promises. God says something, you can count on it. It's, it is good because God always said 4,000 years have passed since He made those promises. And we still believe today that those promises are as important and real and certain as if God made them today. When God says something, God will do what He says. And takeaway number four, God's message, God's messaging 
to his creation is a message about sin and judgment, not a message about self-esteem and pandering people. That's an important takeaway from Obadiah. The messaging of God to his created world is a message of sin and judgment and its results with the promise of salvation to those who will trust him. It is not a message of self-esteem and making people feel good about who they are. These are important takeaways that help us stay on target as the people of God in our day and make sure that we follow the messaging of our God and not succumb to a watered-down ministry of the Word of God in our experience.